Well, guys, people, we want to come now to our uh, scripture reading from Matthew chapter 1. So today I'm going to be uh, starting to uh, talk about the incarnation of the Son of God for this Sunday and next. And I'm going to be focusing mainly on the second half of this chapter, uh, Matthew 1, 18 through 25. But we always read in context so that we don't uh, read things into the text or uh, omit things that we should be saying. And so I'm going to read the whole chapter, including the uh, genealogy, and comment on that a little bit. But before I uh, read the passage, I thought I'd give a little bit of a children's uh, introduction. One of the children's books that uh, we've read, uh, my wife and I have read to our children over the years, is called The Biggest Story, uh, The Snake Crusher. And it's about uh, Genesis 3's promise of that God gives to Adam and Eve of a seed of the woman, a child of, uh, of uh, Adam and Eve, who would undo the fall of mankind, who would crush the head of that serpent in the garden, the, the, uh, the Satan, the devil. And notice that Genesis tells us that that Savior is the seed of a woman, the child of a woman. So this is a human being, and yet we know there's a problem there. How can a human being save and undo the fall when human beings are sinful after the fall? How can a human being crush the devil and defeat sin and death? Only one who's also God can do this through the power of an indestructible life. And so the way this greatest of all stories of the Bible continues is that Jesus, the snake crusher, is both man and God, human and divine in one person. And we're going to give our attention to Matthew 1 as it teaches us this great truth. So if you're able to stand now, uh, please stand as I read from Matthew chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. 
So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. That is the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing. Our Heavenly Father, we come as those who are weak. We come to you who are strong and all-powerful. We come as those who are limited and know that you are not constrained by anything. And so we pray that you would bless this time with richness and abundance, O Lord, that you would work powerfully in each of our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Give life where there is only spiritual death and decay. O Lord, increase our faith where there is faith. O Lord, even though it may be the faith of a mustard seed, Lord, increase our faith. Grow it through your word by your Holy Spirit. Bless us this time beyond our strength because you are gracious. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please uh, have a seat. Well, friends, if someone asked you what your biggest problem in life was, how would you answer that question? Your biggest problem in life. So many, including myself, uh, we've got negative things to say about 2020. Um, be easy for us to answer that question and say, the worst thing right now is COVID-19. We could say losing our job. Uh, ugly looks. Uh, bad grades. The political divides in our country or uh, election woes. Maybe it's family situation or loneliness, abandonment by someone dear to you. But however you might answer that question, we've got news that that is that your biggest problem is not new. It didn't come about this year in 2020. Uh, it's not caused by COVID, but your biggest problem in life goes back to the garden. It goes back to that fall of Adam and Eve. It goes back to that serpent, the devil, and his successful scheme to make Adam and Eve do what? To make them sin and rebel against God and be separated from God. Sin is our greatest problem. It's that evil that affects our world and our own sin that sends us to hell. That is the greatest problem. And it's the same problem that God tackles here, we're told in Matthew 1, through Jesus Christ, the Son of God and His incarnation. You know, our other problems in this world, without minimizing them, without saying that they're not real issues that face us, that we shouldn't care, we should care about those things, but they're all lesser 
compared to this, that sin has left us guilty before God and not only guilty before Him, but corrupted, loving evil, loving darkness rather than light, Jesus said in John 3. The old philosopher Anselm, he wrote a Latin term, the book title is Cur Deus Homo. Why did God become man? And he said that if you don't know why the Son of God had to take on human flesh, why the incarnation happened, you have not considered what a heavy weight sin is. That's a challenge for us. Have we considered the great weight of sin? One of the Puritans wrote, Sin is the great murderer. It let death into the world and keeps death alive. Think about the gravity of what we're saying that God himself took on human flesh. That Jesus is not just a human being, but he's the divine son, the second person of the Trinity, taking on human form. That's an amazing thing for us to consider. That's a huge step to take. And God taking such a dramatic step reminds us that our sin problem is really bad, that nothing in earth of itself could solve this problem. Nothing lesser will do than the incarnation. Uh, Pardon me while I read this quote from another writer who explains it very well. He says, There was no other way because our big problem in life is not familial or historical or society, societal or political or relational or ecclesiastical or financial. The biggest, darkest thing that all of us have to face and that somehow, some way influences everything we do, say, and think isn't outside of us. It's inside. If you had no other problem, problems in your life, you would still be in grave danger because of the danger you are to yourself. If the only thing human beings needed were a little external tweaking of life circumstances, then the coming of Jesus to earth wouldn't make any sense. But if the greatest danger to all our lives inside, is inside of us and not outside of us, then the radical intervention of the incarnation of Jesus is our only hope. So friends, if, if that's true, if sin is your biggest problem and God has sent Jesus Christ to remedy that problem, then your greatest joy this season, this year, in, is not your circumstances changing. It's not the gifts that you're going to get for Christmas, but it is knowing Jesus Christ and being saved from your sins through Him. And we're going to see that here in Matthew. It, it begins with this genealogy. Now, if you've ever had trouble explaining to people why you believe that uh, the New Testament is God's Word, let the first few words of Matthew help you and what we see here in Matthew 1 help you. Because one of the, the foundations of the Reformation principle of sola scriptura is that the Bible tells us that it is God's Word, that the Bible is self-attesting, that it tells us this is God's Word. And one of the ways that the Bible shows us that and convinces us of that is that it tells us one grand story from beginning to end, one grand plan of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. And these things fit together. There's promise and fulfillment. And there's wonder here that God tells us what's going to happen in Genesis 3, and he brings that about through time and through history. And, and seeing the Bible as that great story helps us uh, it keeps us from focusing on just the morals of the characters, and it gives us the big picture. 
There's more going on in the book of Daniel, excuse me, than dare to be a Daniel. It's about God's great story of redeeming a people for himself. And the gospel of Matthew draws us into that great story in its very first words. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is drawing us back to the very beginning of the Bible, to the very beginning of the scriptures. Uh, it's, it's going back beyond David and Abraham to Genesis. That is the Greek word, rather poorly translated genealogy here. This is the Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Just as Genesis marked a pivotal turning point in history, the beginning of, of creation, so the incarnation of the Son of God is such a momentous, a momentous moment in history. All that was told from Genesis to Malachi pointed to this coming and what is bound up in the coming of Jesus Christ. The goal of history is, is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. Now, there's so much that we could say about uh, Matthew, beginning with this genealogy here, uh, we can rejoice that it shows us God directs human history, that he saves sinful people, he changes them, uh, that he uses sinful people. But from the very beginning, we should notice that anyone who's uh, read the Old Testament familiar with it would have heard these words as an echo of that in the beginning. In the beginning, there's a new creation that is dawning in the genesis of Jesus Christ. Just as the Spirit of God hovered over the formless void in Genesis in the creation account, so the Holy Spirit conceives Jesus Christ. And right from the start, Matthew 1 is inviting us to drink deeply into this wonder that God is behind human history. With all of its sinners and its mixed figures, those good kings that we heard about, the bad kings that we read about, In this genealogy, God is behind it all. Don't write off these biblical genealogies as boring, as um, selective, as unimportant history. Matthew is giving us the selective history of God's people, and he's organizing it in this way to show us the completeness, the fullness that comes in Jesus Christ. The stage is set for the dawning of, of the changing of history in the coming of the Messiah. Now, it says there's 14 generations here, 14, 14, and so forth. And that the significance of that is debated by scholars. Some of it seems to me a bit speculative. But notice clearly here, Matthew is giving us this selective genealogy with divisions of key moments and times in history, three sets from Abraham to David, and then from the exile to Jesus to show us that Jesus is the culmination of all of these figures, of all of this history. They were drawing us to this point, the coming of Jesus Christ. After all, think about the second part of that name, Jesus Christ. Now, the name Jesus Christ is not just a first and last name, uh, like Joe Smith. Instead, it's his name, Jesus, and then Christ, the title It's the Greek for anointed one, or in Hebrew, that's the word Messiah. It's a shame that we've lost the power of this Christ as a title, uh, the Messiah. 
English translations don't do justice to this, I think, uh, in saying Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah, the deliverer that was promised that God's people were hoping for. Uh, verse 16, Jesus was born who is called Christ. This is what people long for. Now, anyone from the Old Testament who was familiar with that knew that the Messiah is the son of David. He's from David's line. He's reigning on David's throne. As we've heard about a priest being a king. And so Matthew here calls Jesus the son of David. And the purpose of the genealogy isn't to give us a complete list of, of David's line, but it is to show that Jesus is indeed David's heir. That he is the one who inherits David's throne. And yet, this history comes to a standstill when we get to verse 16. We realize there's a problem here. Because this is the line of Joseph. And here, the familiar pattern ends, right? This person, the father of this person. This person, the father of this person. But it doesn't say Joseph, the father of Jesus. He is instead called the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So Matthew has said that Jesus is the son of David, but he hasn't shown us how Jesus connects to the line of David quite yet. And, and then it continues here to tell us the story of how this happened. God will direct Joseph to name Jesus as his son and as his heir and to accept Mary as his wife. And this shows us that this uh, second half of the chapter and this story here is not just about the birth of Jesus, but it's Matthew's powerful argument for why Jesus is truly the Messiah, the heir to David's throne, who comes in fulfillment of prophecy in the Old Testament. Now, you know the story that Matthew, that Matthew draws us into, verse 18. Joseph's situation, he finds himself betrothed, he's betrothed to Mary. This is closer to marriage than a modern engagement today. Verse 19 tells us that if Joseph broke it off at this point, it would be considered divorce. And he didn't want to shame her, which is a gracious thing in itself, isn't it? But if Joseph had died during this betrothal, she would have been a widow. So there's something serious here. We can just imagine Joseph being perplexed that his uh, betrothed, this woman that he's betrothed to, has a child before they've come together as man and wife. And just as Luke shows us Mary's shock at being a virgin and a child, so Matthew here shows us that Joseph just assumes that Mary has shamed herself in adultery, that she surely had been unfaithful. And yet, as he's contemplating divorce, an angel comes. And the angel's words in verse 20 highlight for us that Joseph is that heir of David. Notice, and as such, he is to take Mary as his wife, for her child is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 20. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so he's instructed to take Mary as his wife and to name the child Jesus. And that was, that naming was crucial. It, 
establish Jesus as Joseph's heir, making Joseph's lineage, his family tree, Jesus's lineage and family tree. And Matthew then explains the name Jesus. It, of course, as I mentioned here, Joshua means the Lord is salvation. Joshua matches up with Jesus in Greek. So the name of this child is Jesus, which essentially means the Lord is salvation. And why is he named this? Because he will save his people from their sins. Friends, that's the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he came to do. That's why the Son of God took on human flesh, to save his people from their sins. It wasn't to do all these, to make your situation better. It wasn't to give you riches. It wasn't to be a political ruler, but to save from sins. And we're invited to, to awe and wonder here that it's not just true broadly, the Lord is salvation, but that this child is himself the agent of that salvation. This particular child is the one who gives salvation and purchases it for us. And this is uh, what God had planned all along. God is in control of human history. Uh, this is what God had promised through the prophets, we're told. And that's the great theme that we're going to see in our Lessons and Carols of promise and fulfillment that what God says is going to happen in the Old Testament comes about in the New Testament. And as God directs human history, notice the different ways He works. Sometimes He creates from nothing, and other times He uses means, even sinful human beings, the people in these genealogies that we've heard and read, even Joseph himself. The, the prophets spoke, it says, about Jesus. And we're told this whole series of events with the virgin birth, Joseph receiving a message, this is all bound up with what God had promised in Isaiah. As Isaiah 7.14 is quoted here, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The virgin birth is not a doctrine that we can just take or leave. It is part of our faith. It is part of what God says in his word. And we might ask, how does the naming of this child Jesus fulfill that promise? How is Isaiah 7 actually brought out here? The promise of Emmanuel, God with us. Well, friends, you cannot read the New Testament without it shouting to you that Jesus Christ is both God and man. Two natures, one person. He is Jesus. He's going to save his people from their sins. He's Emmanuel. He's God dwelling with his people, tabernacling among us. The eternal Son of God conceived by the Holy Spirit. God taking on flesh and and being among us, and being like us. So not only did God work apart from means, didn't he, he did things miraculously, the virgin birth, conception through the Holy Spirit, but he also uses sinful human beings to accomplish his purposes in history, those people who need salvation from their sins themselves. And here, he uses Mary, he uses Joseph, and Joseph is really the, the feature here in this text. Verse 24 or 25 say, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Friends, it says Jesus saves his people from their sins. 
We need to hear that because today, our world and society, we've lost the language of sin, haven't we? People think their biggest problem is life outside of them. It's institutions, it's politicians, it's the system rigged against them, the planet being destroyed. As important as those things may be, as much attention as people can rightfully give those things, do you know that sin is your biggest problem? The biggest problem facing every human being to live on this earth. That it takes God becoming man to deal with this sin problem. You can't fix it yourself. There's no easy fix. This costs the Son of God. Do we know that our sin is the biggest cause of our own misery on a daily basis? I love this quote by a uh, persecuted Scottish minister from the 17th century. Robert Fleming said, In the worst of times, there is still more cause to complain of an evil heart than of an evil world. Do you know that you need your sins dealt with? Your sins forgiven? Remember that story of the paralyzed man who's brought to Jesus and his friends ask Jesus for healing. And what does Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven. Now, in one sense, that's a letdown, right? This man wants to be healed. He doesn't want to be paralyzed. And yet, Jesus gives him something greater. And of course, by the way, does heal him as well. But our sin, that's what we need rescue from. Jesus said, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. It entraps and it will ruin you slowly and subtly. Sin destroys and defeats like that old picture of a frog boiling in water. You don't always realize that you're being destroyed by sin. And certainly God doesn't always punish sin immediately. He doesn't bring you to realize the misery of your sin always at that time. And yet even the guilt that we feel after we sin reminds us that misery is bound up with sin, that sin and suffering I have a a relationship with each other that is intimate. And so, friends, as we hear Matthew telling us that Jesus has come to deal with our sin, we should rejoice. We should have that joy that David celebrates in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Or happy is the one. And that is our happiness because of Jesus Christ. The burden of this passage has been to tell us that He has the credentials to deal with this. That He is the Son of God, Emmanuel, and yet also the one who is David's heir, who reigns on His throne. He is the Messiah, who's anointed, the anointed one who has this great task of dealing with our sins. God had said in the Old Testament that His task would be redeeming God's elect people, saving them from their sins and giving them righteousness that they might enjoy eternity with God. That's what history was driving toward, the return of Christ, the resurrection. It's what it's driving towards now, the return of Christ, the resurrection, the consummation of this kingdom. And yet, think about this, that to fulfill this task, Jesus not only had to fulfill Isaiah 7, but also Isaiah 53 where it's told that he would suffer for the sins of many. That he's not just the king, but he's also the servant who didn't have majesty that we should look at him in a worldly sense. We know that he 
he came to this earth. It's not just this romantic story about a child in a manger, but that we know that the cross will follow. That after the manger comes brutal death on the cross. That John the baptizer would say, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. But that idea of a lamb means one who is slain as a substitute for our sins, that our sins are put on him and taken away from us, that his righteousness might be given to us. And Matthew's genealogy reminds us that this has a worldwide impact. Um, There are women listed in this genealogy, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, the the wife of, of David, who were not of Israel. Well, maybe Bathsheba, but I can't remember. Uh, and yet they received God's grace through faith. Jesus has Gentiles in his family line. And salvation was always meant to go beyond ethnic Israel to any who would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and the promise of the Messiah and to lean on the one who would be the lamb that takes away our sins. Matthew begins this theme that's going to run through his book even to the very end, that gospel commission to go into the ends of the earth. Uh, The church is Catholic. That means universal. It's comprised of all kinds of different people who believe in Jesus Christ. Now, as we think about how to apply this even beyond what we've already said, friends, marvel at God's word when you see the richness of how the story fits together from promise to fulfillment. Uh, This chapter draws you all the way back to Genesis. It ties together this great story and even the the bookends of the book itself. Matthew itself ties together in an amazing way. This is a masterful book. It begins with the Emmanuel principle that God is with us in Jesus Christ. And how does it end? Matthew 28. What does Jesus say as He gives His great commission? Behold, I am with you to the end of the age. It begins with the origin of Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, in whom all the nations will be blessed, God said in Genesis. And it ends with Jesus, Emmanuel, giving that promise to go to the nations, knowing that God is with you. Do we think about that when we evangelize, that God is with us in the grocery store? Do we know that promise that God is with us? Do we remember the names of Jesus Christ and the spiritual significance behind each of them? That God is Emmanuel, that He is Jesus who will save us from our sins. The Lord is salvation. And that makes us ask, are we saved from our sins through Jesus Christ? Is God with you? Or is He against you because you continue to rebel against Him rather than bend the knee and confess Him as Savior and Lord? Furthermore, know that the King has come because the King has come. His kingdom is here. The new creation has already begun. The new Genesis has not just gone from Jesus and His birth, but to you and your new birth, your regeneration. Even though He is the resurrected King. He's ascended into heaven. What has He done? He's not left you, but He's given you His Holy Spirit. He's with you. And He's given you the Spirit as a guarantee. 
one day Christ will return. He'll make all things new. The the imperishable, the perishable will put on the imperishable. Will all be changed? So we wait for that that new experience of Emmanuel, God with us, as we behold our God face to face. And yet, as we look to that day, everything that we've read here in Matthew one should breathe life and purpose into our lives now. As we wait, we need purpose. We need to know that our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Your your place in this life is not meaningless. You're not just waiting. But God embeds human beings with names into His story as He did here in this genealogy. That as mundane as your life seems, day in, day out, doing the same things over and over again, you're not meaningless and purposeless. It's not mundane because you are a servant of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And you're part of this great history. You're you're written into His story that God uses sinful people to do His purposes. You don't have to just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You never know how God can use you and your witness, weak as you are, lacking in so many ways. If God can use a stable to house the newborn king, he can use you. If shepherds looked down upon in the ancient world can herald the coming of the Son of God and see the angelic host proclaiming his glory and hallelujah in the highest, then he can use you with all of your blemishes. As we heard in 2 Kings this morning, God used a, a captured Hebrew servant girl to draw Naaman to the man of God, to draw him to God's grace. We have been saved from our sins through Jesus Christ to serve. You've been saved to serve Him. God uses sinful people like you and like me. Now, He won't necessarily use us in a redemptive historical way. Your, your name's not going to go in any book of the Bible as the canon is closed. But He can use you to comfort the afflicted, to spread the gospel, to raise up a godly family, to simply sing His praises day in and day out and pray for others. 1 Corinthians 12 says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. As it is, God arranged the members in one body, each one of them as He chose. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. We serve God in each different ways, but we rejoice that whatever role we play, God uses us for His good purposes and His glory despite our sinfulness. After all, think about what it means to save you from your sins. You're not just saved from guilt of sin. Not just given a place in heaven, but you're saved from sin's power as well. Sin does not reign over you if you're in Jesus Christ, but God is sanctifying you. He's saving you from your sins, and that means not just giving you a place in heaven, giving you access to God, but it means putting sin to death in your life here and now, making you more like Jesus Christ in whom all God's promises are yes and amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do rejoice in Your Word this morning from Matthew chapter 1. There's so many treasures here that we could think about, and we pray that we would meditate on Your Word uh, as we come to the end of this year. As we think about Your incarnation, help us to marvel and to revel in what You have done and how you have told us about what you've done. Lord, that 
you didn't just do this, but you made us a part of this. Uh, Lord, that when Jesus did all that he did, he did it as our federal head, as our representative, as our substitute, the Lamb of God. Lord God, we do mourn over his suffering as we think about our sins and how grave they are. Help us not to think of sin lightly. Uh, Help us not to think of it lightly when we sin against you today and tomorrow and the day after. But Lord, to know the great weight of sin that it demanded. Uh, Lord, that if you are to be just and merciful to save us from our sins, that Jesus Christ had to bear the penalty for our sins. Uh, Lord, we pray that this would challenge us and keep us from sin and that your spirit would continue uh, to work in us that which pleases you. Thank you that you are Emmanuel, uh, that Jesus is always with us, even to the end of the age. And we pray this in his name. Amen.